Can you hear that? Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, 2022's Reformation Night. If you haven't already, let's, let's find our seats, and uh, we're going to turn our attention to our biography this evening on Thomas Cranmer. But before we do, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll begin our time together. Let's, let's unite our hearts and pray. Our great God and Father, we thank You that we stand in our generation on the shoulders of giants. We praise You that You have paved the way for where we are today by faithful saints who have gone before us, who have, by the working of Your Spirit in their hearts, enlightening them, they have seen the truths of Your Word. They have stood boldly and courageously, even at the cost of their own life, so that we might not only have Your Word, but we might also receive a tradition of rich instruction, of rightly interpreting Your Word, that we might walk before You in sincere fear and faith and live lives that please You. We thank You this evening particularly for the life of Thomas Cranmer. We look forward to learning more about him, of seeing his example both negative and positive for us. We pray, Father, that we would be those who are not ignorant of history, but that we would be informed, that we would be not only informed, but thankful to be able to learn about the lives of Your people that have lived in generations before us, that we might imitate their faith, that we might learn from their example to be courageous and wise and bold for the truth in our day. We pray that You would draw near to us. We pray that You would encourage our faith. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let us start by hearing a verse from the Word of God. Hebrews 13, verse 7 commands us as the church, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of, uh, of their way of life and imitate their faith. One of the reasons that we have something like Reformation Night is that we might in one small way obey that text and remember the saints that have gone before us, the saints upon whose shoulders we stand. And to remember that those who spoke the Word of God to us are not only those who are living today with us, but also teachers from the past. And we do not do this in order to idolize these men and these women, but rather to glory in the God in whom they, ser uh, whom they served. And to take encouragement today that their God who was with them in their day is our God today. That by God's grace, we might serve Christ faithfully in our generation. And Thomas Cranmer, as we'll see with all of his weaknesses and all of his sins, he is among those who the author to the Hebrews says, he is like Abel who, Abel who though dead, yet he speaks. And so let's... Let's begin, I want to just open up this evening some, something of a brief biography of Cranmer's life and his influence on the English Reformation. Um, Thomas Cranmer is a very important figure in the Reformation in England, though he's relatively unknown by most. In fact, how many of us have heard of Thomas Cranmer? Okay, not that many. How many of us know anything about him? Okay, a few. Uh, he's a very important figure, and yet he's relatively unknown by most Christians today. Uh, the Reformation, if you're here and you're unfamiliar, the Reformation is that period in the 15th and the 16th century 
uh, centuries when the light of God's Word was recovered and it shone into the darkness of Roman Catholic superstition and the church by the Spirit of God through the Word of God was reformed according to the Word of God. And Cranmer is a Reformation hero that we might describe as very human. His life is marked by weaknesses, a struggle with fear, and yet also marked by a genuine faith and a desire to see the cause of the Reformation furthered. Cranmer lived most of his life, virtually all of his adult life, in between the pressures of powerful politicians on the one hand and his own growing personal theological convictions on the other hand. And as a result of that, he often uh, was torn between these two things. And he was a rather, um, we might say, timid reformer. Uh, So, for instance, he's not like a Martin Luther who just said whatever he wanted to say and let the chips fall, uh, fall where they may. But rather, his life can be described as a mixture of courage where he toes the line at times of his convictions, even with the king, but also a mixture of courage with um, compromise, times where he failed to live consistently with his, out of his convictions, and in between those two, wisdom, where he waited for the right time to implement his convictions and press for reformation. Um, he was, one, one author said, probably the most cautious and even indecisive of the reformers. Uh, he sought reformation in such a way that he could still keep his life. And yet, at the end of his life, he proved that his convictions from the Word of God won out over his at times political expediency as he did end up dying a martyr for the Reformed faith. And so let's, let's, be, let's uh, get into the beginnings of his life. Cranmer was born July 2nd, 1489. So, to put that in historical perspective for you, he is six years younger than Luther, and he's five years older than William Tyndale. Um, all three of those were contemporaries. Uh, Luther, of course, was in Germany. Um, both Tyndale and Cranmer are in England. And uh, Cranmer was born in a small village called Eslockton, England. Uh, we don't know much about his early, early life. We know that his father died when he was about 12, And his mother raised him as a good Roman Catholic. In his younger years, he showed extraordinary giftedness towards learning and education. And so when he turned 14, his mother sent him to Jesus College, Cambridge, um, in pursuit of the priesthood. So at age 14, he goes into this uh, college at Cambridge to become a priest. For the first eight years... He studies to get his bachelor's degree, which he does in 1511. And then four more years, he gets his master's degree in 1515. So he's 26 years old by the time he gets his master's degree. Now, surprising twist, soon after that, after he gets his master's uh, degree, he marries. Now, at this time, clerical celibacy was strongly enforced. Uh, Priests could not take wives to themselves, but he marries a young woman named Joan who dies in childbirth before their first anniversary. And because of his marriage, he lost his fellowship at the college, 
But after she died, in order to show their regard for Cranmer, the college reinstated his fellowship, and he was actually ordained as a priest, and he continued his studies there and became an outstanding theologian. Uh, he went on to earn his doctorate degree in 1526, so he's 37 years old, still continuing his education that entire time. And he remained at the college during those years, studying, lecturing, and serving as an examiner of men who were aspiring to the priesthood. So he was a man who would not only teach, but he would uh, examine theologically and the lives of men who were wanting to become priests. However, during that time, Cranmer is privately undergoing theological changes from a different influence. About six years before that, so he gets his, um, his highest degree uh, in 1526, his doctorate. About six or seven years before that, in somewhere around 1520 or 1521, he starts meeting with a group of Cambridge scholars at a pub called the White Horse Tavern, or more well known as the White Horse Inn. How many of us have heard of the White Horse Inn? Yeah, because there's podcasts named after it. I wonder if you knew it has its roots back to Cranmer. Um, and he and this group of scholars from Cambridge would regularly meet and they would specifically discuss Luther's ideas and his theological revolution in Germany. And in fact, the group was dubbed with the name Little Germany. That's what they were known as when they would meet together at the White Horse Inn. And according to John Fox, in attendance at these meetings were Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney, Miles Coverdale, Matthew, Matthew Parker, William Tyndale, Nicholas Shaxton, John Rogers, and John Bale. Now, you may not be familiar with all those names, but it is incredible how many of those men at these early Little Germany meetings would go on to become martyrs for the Reformed faith. Um, it's very fascinating. If you go to Cambridge today, there is still a plaque that marks the place of this pub and it says on that plaque, a birthplace of the Reformation in England. And as Cranmer studied the Bible and continued his discussions with, about these Lutheran ideas with these other men, he began to see cl uh, clearer and clearer that the Roman Catholic Church had clearly departed into error, and yet he wasn't at a point yet where he was ready to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. But privately, by 1525, Cranmer was praying for the abolition of papal power in England. Now, when the, one of the plagues, there were many plagues that, that came to England, when one of the plagues struck Cambridge, uh, Cranmer and several of his students moved away to stay at a place called Waltham Abbey. And this is the circumstance, this is God's providence that eventually makes him the king's chaplain. Um, King Henry VIII is a very fascinating figure in history. In, in really, in one sense, he's both a supporter and an opponent of the Reformation, and for differing reasons. And King Henry VIII is the king while Cranmer is, is at Cambridge. He's the one that he'll become his chaplain. King, Henry's, uh, king Henry VIII's first marriage was not without controversy. Okay, when Henry's brother Arthur died in 1502, Henry's father betrothed uh, Henry to Arthur's widow named Catherine of Aragon. 
And so his brother dies and his father betroths Henry to his brother's widow. And that betrothal immediately caused controversy and raised questions about the biblical prohibition about marrying, um, against marrying your brother's wife. You can read about that in Leviticus 18 and 20. But the couple did marry anyway in 1509. And after a series of miscarriages, finally a daughter, Mary, was born. She will grow up and become known as Bloody Mary. And Mary is born in 1516. Now, Henry's got other problems though. Um, by the 1520s, Henry still does not have a son to name as his heir. And he took that as a sure sign of God's anger over the, wed over the marriage. And he therefore made overtures to the Vatican, to Rome, to see if he can get an annulment, see if he can get a divorce. And the Pope, for political reasons, was not inclined to allow the king to divorce Catherine of Aragon because she had connections with people who were currently supporting the Pope. Um, so he was not willing at the time to give in. He just drugged that whole thing out and made the king wait. So here's how it connects to Cranmer. At Waltham, uh, Waltham Abbey, Cranmer has dinner with some of the king's advisors and they bring up the subject of the king's desire for a divorce and they ask Cranmer what he thought would be the best way to help the king attain his divorce. And Cranmer replied that they should ask the universities for their opinion. And Cranmer also said this, very impactful on the king. He said that a case could very easily be made from the Scriptures both, not only did Henry have the right to divorce Catherine, but also he said a case could be easily made that the king should be head of the Church of England and not the Pope. And the king shouldn't be subject to the Pope. Well, the men reported that answer to the king, and the king was so pleased with that advice that he appointed Cranmer to be his chaplain, a position Cranmer holds until the king's death. Um, and one of the first things the king has Cranmer do is to write a treaty defending his positions on why his divorce is lawful and on his ideas about the king being um, the head of the church in England. Cranmer happily did this using arguments from Scripture, the early church fathers, and the church councils. Now, Cranmer's position with the king oftentimes uh, forced him to have to travel on the king's official business. And it was during these travels that he met some of the other reformers, particularly in Germany. And it was particularly in Germany where he began more to read Luther's works for himself. And he also, during this time, carried on correspondence with other reformers like Martin Bucer and uh, Heinrich Bullinger. And it was during this season that led to Cranmer developing an even firmer conviction and a deeper embracing of Protestant Reformed doctrine and teaching. And it was also in Germany that Cranmer met his second wife, Margaret. And he married Margaret. Margaret was the niece of a Lutheran reformer named Andreas Osiander. And remember, at this time still, it was not permissible for priests to marry. And so Cranmer kept his marriage to Margaret secret for the first 14 years of his being archbishop. Um, and it's here, I'll, I'll pause here, it's here that you see an example of what, what I've mentioned at the beginning. Um, you see here an example of what some would call cowardice 
And others, though, would view it differently and call it wisdom. Because um, Cranmer was convinced in his own conscience that biblically there's nothing wrong for me to take a wife for myself. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing in the Scriptures that prohibit bishops from taking... Uh, to, from entering into marriage. And so in his own conscience, he's not doing anything wrong. But he also recognized the times in which he lived and he recognized that it, was ca- it would cause much trouble for his bringing reform if his marriage and his theology were to be made, made known publicly at the time. And so it's hard to judge these things from you know several, several centuries on. Probably a mixture of timidity and a mixture of wisdom. But lest you... You know, just cast him off as just this spineless compromiser. We also see his courage on display during this same period of time on other subjects that he was absolutely unwilling to, to bend on. For instance, the king appoints uh, Cranmer as Archbishop of Canterbury. He gets ordained March 30th of 1533, which, by the way, that's the highest position in the Church of England. And to be, at least in this day, before they had formally broke from the Roman Catholic Church, to be Archbishop of Canterbury required you to take the obligatory oath that you would be subject in all things to the Pope at Rome. Um, However, the day before Cranmer had to take that oath, Cranmer signed a statement qualifying that oath saying that he would not bind himself to quote, do or attempt anything which will or may seem to be contrary to God's law or against His Majesty, the King of England. Um, Just a little bit of Cranmer's political theory. Um, Cranmer was a strong believer that the King, not the Pope, had the ultimate authority to be the head of both the church and the state. Uh, He believed that the King was God's appointed servant to, to lead both church and state. And his making a qualification to this oath, saying that yes, I'll submit to the Pope as long as it doesn't cause me to contradict the Word of God or go against the King, that's not something that many bishops of this day would publicly do or make known. And so, already here you see, yes, he has compromise in areas, and yet he has courage on things that he's not willing to bend on. And... He, he already here at this early stage, you see his allegiance is not to the Pope, but to the Word of God and the King whom he believed God had appointed to lead the church into truth. And one of the first things Cranmer did for King Henry um, after he was appointed as Archbishop was he granted him his divorce from Catherine and he then validated King Henry's marriage to a woman named Anne Boleyn. And Anne was a Protestant which made things quite a bit easier for the Reformation, uh, the Reformers and their followers. However, Cranmer's allegiance to the king did at at times cause him to act inconsistently. And I personally think that at times his almost absolute allegiance to the king at times biased him to do things that were unbiblical. For instance, in 15, so he just, he married Anne in 1533. Fast forward three years later, 1536, on the instruction of the king, Cranmer then invalidates the king's marriage to Anne. And later, he rules that Henry's proposed marriage to a different Anne, Anne of Cleves, 
he says that that marriage is lawful. And yet, six months after Anne and the king are married, Cranmer approves Henry's divorce on the grounds that the original marriage was not lawful. And so try to figure that one out. I mean, it's just, you see that there's a bit of political blindness to the king and causing Cranmer to act in some less than um, upright ways in his dealings with the king. So, Cranmer was a very controversial man. Um, He was a man who had many enemies, few friends, and many people who honestly just didn't know what to think about him. So, for instance, Protestants didn't know whether they could trust him. Because to many of them, it seemed like he was just the king's lackey and couldn't be trusted and was just kind of, you know, a fair-weather friend to the Reformed cause. And as long as it helped him, he's on board, but as soon as it doesn't, he might flip on us. And to be fair, there were reasons for the Protestants to be concerned along those lines, okay? For instance, I'll give you another one of his inconsistencies. For instance, Cranmer enforced the king's order to arrest priests who were discovered to have wives even though he was secretly married, okay? So, again, that's a weakness. That's an inconsistency. So, that confuses the Protestants. Seems like he's not for the Reformation. And yet, there were also reasons to see him as a genuine friend of the Reformation and not just a politician. For instance, I'll give you a couple of these. He was not afraid to stand up to the king. He would, in fact, he would often plead with the king to do what is right. For instance, he often pled for the lives of Various people, among them were Thomas Cromwell, Thomas More, and Anne Boleyn, one of Henry's wives. Cranmer pleaded with the king not to behead them when the king had his heart set on having them beheaded. Now you think about it, when you're dealing with a king who not only has power, but has a track record of beheading people, it takes courage to argue with that king about whether he should behead people, because it might be your head next. Um, Also, not only did he show courage with regard to righteousness, he shows great desire to influence the king towards Protestant values and convictions. So for instance, I've already mentioned that he defends that the Pope should have no rule or authority in England, and that the king ought to be the head of the church. But even more than that, this is really significant, Cranmer is instrumental, instrumental in getting Tyndale's English Bible placed in every church in England. That's very, if you're familiar with the history of the Reformation, you know that's very anti-Rome. Okay? And that's, that's a very significant thing, and, and as I mentioned, it kind of shows the weird figure that Henry VIII is. Um, because Tyndale, the translator of the Bible into English, was martyred just the year before while Henry VIII was in power. And he was martyred for translating the Bible into English. And more than that, at this time, there are still laws in England when when Cranmer's trying to get this Bible placed in all the churches, there are still laws that make reading the Bible in English rather than in Latin a very serious crime. And so Cranmer, in both a move of bravery, I think, and a move of political um, genius and playing to the king's own pride, 
What Cranmer does is he has Tyndale's translation of the Scriptures dedicated to King Henry VIII. And he has this Bible presented to the king. And if you've ever seen one of these, the great Bible dedicated to Henry VIII, you open it up and what's on the first page? It's a great picture of Henry VIII. So Cranmer has, has it dedicated to him. He has it presented to the king. And he asks the king for, quote, a royal license that this book may be sold read by every person without danger of any act, proclamation, or ordinance heretofore granted to the contrary. So he's asking the king, can this Bible not only be sold and not only be read by everyone, but can you abolish all of the former laws up to this point that has made reading the English Bible illegal? And the king grants his permission. (laughs) And the people just... Very quickly, suddenly, every church in England has the Bible. And people all over England have access to the Word of God. And churches suddenly are open at all times for anyone to come whenever they please to read the Bible and to pray. And so, the Protestants look at him from that vantage point and it seems like this man's on our side. Okay, now let me talk just briefly about how the Catholics viewed him. The Catholics obviously view him as a traitor. He's a traitor to Rome and the Pope. And it's, there's many stories you can read. I'll just mention one. It's very interesting. Even though the king... It was somewhat like Herod's relationship to John the Baptist and how Herod had John the Baptist in prison, but he thought very highly of John. That's why he was sorrowful when he made the, the deal that he did that he would give... Uh, his uh, stepdaughter anything and ended up having to behead John. It's kind of that relationship with, um, with Henry VIII and Cranmer. Even though Henry VIII is more Catholic than he is anything else, and he does not get on board with all of Cranmer's Protestant doctrine, and he certainly didn't like when Cranmer took him to task, yet the king protected Cranmer over and over from the plots of his enemies. I'll just give you one, one story, one example. There was one instance where the king's cabinet, uh, those around him, plotted to arrest and convict Cranmer on the charge of treason and to have him executed. The king somehow found out about it and personally gave Cranmer the king's signet ring. And when he is approached by the cabinet in order to condemn him and surround him and arrest him, Cranmer at the right, minute, uh, right moment pulls out the king's signet ring and that is what gets him out of all the charges and he escapes from their plot. And so the king, even though he didn't always agree with Cranmer, didn't appreciate him in every respect, nonetheless looked after him. So, Cranmer bided his time between the king and the political pressures there and between those who didn't like him and his enemies. And the years 1537 through 1547... Cranmer becomes very involved in the politics of England. Um, He was able to accomplish much for the Reformation during this time because of his political friendships. And it was throughout this decade that Cranmer began to change his view on two very important doctrines of the Reformation. His, His growth in Reformed doctrine was gradual. And it was during this decade that he begins to grow more firm in his convictions, his Protestant convictions, on the doctrine of the Lord's Supper 
and the doctrine of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. Um, and those, you're probably familiar, are the two doctrines that were at the core of the Reformation because they attacked and undermined the central part of the Roman Catholic system. Now, Henry VIII did not support these doctrines. He was happy to stick with the Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. Um, he was happy to stick with their doctrine of justification by a mixture of works and faith. But in 1547, something significant happens. 1547, Henry VIII dies. And in such good favor did Cranmer remain with the king that on his deathbed as he was dying, the king asked Cranmer to come be with him and pray with him as he departed this world. King Henry VIII dies 1547 and King Edward VI rises to the throne. Edward is a Protestant. And granted, he's only nine years old when he ascends the throne. And together, Cranmer and Edward, uh, Edward begin to make the Church of England a, an explicitly Protestant church. As soon as Edward comes to power, Latin prayers in worship are immediately translated into English. Uh, the altars of the Roman Catholic churches are changed into communion tables. Images and the use of candles in worship is stopped, and they put in, is, they, an end is put to them. Um, and Cranmer begins to lead the whole Church of England in a Protestant way of life and worship. And the, one of the primary ways he does this is Cranmer begins writing significant works that will help lead the church in its reform. So in 1547, the year that Edward comes to the throne, Cranmer publishes his book of homilies. So this is a book of sermons. And they were sermons that were to be read in every congregation. And they were sermons that emphasized reformed doctrine and instructed the people in true religion. Two years after that, Cranmer writes the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, a second edition is written three years later in 1552. And he called it the Book of Common Prayer because he intended it to be a book that instructed the whole nation, not just pastors, not just clergy, but all Christian people. He hoped that it would be a book that would instruct them how to pray in a godly way according to the will of God. And he hoped it would be a tool that banished much of the superstition of Rome and fill instead the people's minds with biblically informed prayers. Now, he also wrote it because he wanted to keep what he called rogue ministers from, he didn't use this phrase, but from uh, harping on their hobby horses. So he wanted to kind of be able to guide from certain guys who just went all over the place. He wanted to give them some structure of what they should stick to uh, in, in the corporate worship of God. Um, he also writes significantly 42 articles, which later becomes the 39 articles. How many of us have heard of the 39 articles? Okay, some of us. Um, the 39 Articles becomes the doctrinal statement of the Church of England. And if you read the 39 Articles, they are Reformed and Calvinistic in its emphasis. Okay, so for instance, I'll give you a, couple, or a few examples here. 
And it's very brief, by the way. You can read the 39 articles in, in not very long at all. Um, on Article 11, which deals with justification, this is the confession of faith Cranmer penned. Um, and just hear this in light, knowing that they are currently moving away from what Roman Catholicism believes about justification. This is what Article 11 says. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely is expressed in the homily on justification. He's referring to the book of homilies there. Article 22 on purgatory. He writes, The Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshiping and adoration as well of images as of relics and also invocation of the saints is a fond thing vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the Word of God. Uh, Article 28 on transubstantiation or the, the Catholic doctrine of the Mass. Um, he says, writes, transubstantiation or the change of the substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthrow, uh, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. So you can hear the bold tone of Cranmer and how hardlined he's coming out as a leader in England as a, uh, uh, one leading the Reformation here. And great reform took place under, or in England under Cranmer and Edward during his reign. However, Edward's reign was short-lived. Just about five to six years. 1553, Edward becomes terminally ill. He's, a very, he's still a young kid at that age. And he and Cranmer knew that if the throne went to Mary, right? remember Henry had a daughter with Catherine, Mary, they knew if the throne goes back to her, England is returning to Catholicism. Mary was a rigid Roman Catholic. And so Cranmer signed a document that would give the crown to Edward's Protestant cousin, Lady Jane Grey, bypassing Mary. But here's the problem. That was contrary to what Cranmer had promised Henry VIII he would do. And again, that's something of uh, the weakness of his, his, something of the wavering nature of his character. But nonetheless, that's what they try. Let's have your Protestant cousin kind of go over Mary and uh, they'll become uh, king. But it didn't work. Uh, or she'll become king, excuse me. Or queen, not king. It doesn't work. Lady Jane Grey is deposed nine days into her reigning, and Bloody Mary, soon to become Bloody Mary, is crowned queen after Edward dies. As soon as Mary assumes the crown, heavy persecution ensues upon the Protestants. Um, Mary hated Protestants and hated the Reformation like nothing else. Um, she immediately passed laws that demanded all Protestants convert back to Roman Catholicism, and those who would not would be imprisoned or put to death. And Mary specifically, not only did she do this for all Protestants generally, 
she specifically didn't forget what Cranmer had tried to do to her. Uh, She didn't forget that he had tried to help her not get the crown and help get uh, Lady Jane Grey in her place. And she also hated Cranmer because so many years before, Cranmer had been the one who had helped Henry VIII get a divorce from her mom. So she's always had resentment towards Cranmer for that. And so she has Cranmer condemned for treason, for bringing Lady uh, Jane Grey to the throne. He's arrested. He's thrown into Tower Prison where Latimer and Ridley uh, were also imprisoned. I'll I'll say more about uh, Latimer and Ridley. Hopefully, Lord willing, one year we'll have to do one of these biographies just on those two men and their martyrdom. So the three of them, Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley, are all then transferred to Oxford where they are called upon to give a legal defense. And it's very reminiscent of our Lord's uh, being put on defense in the kangaroo court. It's, it's not real. They're not really there to hear them out and hear their case. And they're just ignored and they're condemned as heretics and they're sentenced to death. Cranmer, because of his high office as the archbishop, was publicly degraded. Um, Degradation is, is what it's called for priests who abandon the faith, abandon their office, are put through a, a shameful process of, of shame, being shamed. And the remo- it's showing the removal of their fitness from the office that they once held. He was stripped of his nice garments as the archbishop and he was clothed in old rags, literally old rags. His accusers delighted to torment him. They delighted in his humiliation. The lower they could cause Cranmer to go, the more they rejoiced. Cranmer is condemned officially by Rome in 1555. But here's the thing. Bloody Mary wanted more than just to execute another reformer. She knew Cranmer's weaknesses of character. And she believed that if she could get Cranmer to recant, greater damage would be done to the Reformation than if she just had him put to death. And so at her request, Cranmer's torturers suddenly change their tactic from torture to kindness. And they begin, by her instruction, working on his fears. And they allowed Cranmer for a season to stay in a luxurious home, one of the homes of the the upper men in society, where he was treated very, very well, very kindly, and they would talk to him about the dangers of being killed for his beliefs, and they would tell him how much better it would be for you, Thomas, if you would just become a Roman Catholic again. All, all your fortunes, they would tell him, would be restored. Everything you've lost for being a Protestant would immediately be given back to you. But Cramer wouldn't recant. He was resolute. That made Mary, Bloody Mary angry with his stubbornness. And so she again changes her method. She sends him to the worst part of the uh, worst part of the prison, where he is treated extremely harshly. He was isolated from all friends, and no one was allowed to give him anything that would alleviate his suffering. And he stayed there for three years. Mary then became very ruthless. I mean, this shows you something of the the wickedness of Bloody Mary. Kind of having exhausted all of her other options, she then ordered Cranmer's friends, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, to be burned at the stake right before Cranmer's eyes. 
and made him watch the burning of his two friends. And if you remember from the intro, Hugh Latimer was a part of the White Horse Inn meeting some 30 years before this. So he's been with Cranmer in the Reformed cause from the beginning. Um, Lat- I'll just give you something of it's worth. They're worthy to be mentioned in terms of their, their martyrdom and their faithfulness. Latimer is the one who, you probably heard this, famously said to Ridley as they lit the wood and the fires began to burn, Latimer said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, or Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. And Latimer, he was the older of the two, he died very quickly in the flames. But for Ridley, the wood was wet and it burned only around his legs. And his legs were completely burned while his upper body remained untouched by the flames. And Cranmer is watching his friend in agony until an onlooker out of pity moves some of the wood so that the flames can reach his neck where they, had, they would tie a, a pack of gunpowder to their necks to ease their suffering so that they would die more quickly. And finally, the gunpowder went off and, and uh, Ridley went, entered into glory. But Cranmer witnessed this horrific event and it had a profound effect upon his constitution. He became extremely discouraged, extremely broken down, extremely brought low. And it was after this that Mary continues her torture, both physical and psychological, and they torture him to the point where his enemies finally finally succeed in getting him to sign a paper that he had given up the Protestant faith and had again become a Roman Catholic. And he signed not only one, but many recantations. And each of them, as they were brought to him, each of them increased in their explicitness of his affirmation of the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine. And Cranmer, in this moment of failure and weakness, put his name to things that said things like this, that he detests and abhors the heresies of Luther and Zwingli, confessing the Pope to be the supreme head on earth and the vicar of Christ, Uh, Cranmer signed his name to the doctrine of the Mass and the other six sacraments of the Catholic Church. He signed his name to the idea of purgatory. And last of all was this statement. And you can read all of these in their entirety if you get John Fox's Book of Martyrs. The last part of what he signed said this, quote, and to conclude, as I submit myself to the Catholic Church of Christ and to the supreme head thereof, So I submit myself unto the most excellent majesties of Philip and Mary, King and Queen of this realm of England, and to all all of their laws and ordinances, being ready always as a faithful subject ever to obey them. And then he has to sign his name to this line. And God is my witness that I have not done this for favor or out of fear of any person, but willingly and of mine own conscience as to the instruction of others. That was Mary's way of... How would you put it? In her mind, driving a death blow to the Reformation. That she got the confession from Cranmer that not only did he come back as a Catholic, but he did it willingly of his own conscience in order to instruct others. 
This was Cranmer's ultimate Peter moment. He really is a real-life Peter, or a, a modern, in his day, Peter. He broke under pressure and fear, much like Peter, and he denied Christ, like Peter. His recantation was immediately printed and dispersed by Mary and the Catholics that it might then have its due effect on the Protestants and the, Reform, and the Reformed cause. But, God is in the midst of all of this. And as they seek to make Him famous for His recantation, God counterworks all of their designs to put an end to the Reformed faith. And because to the extent that they publicized and made famous His recantation, they were building His fame for the influence of His great confession that He would give before He died. For Cranmer, after he denied the Reformed faith, honestly, for in his own, if you asked him, death would have been more preferable to him than life because of how plagued his conscience was. Because of, in his mind, the crime he had committed against all true believers. Um, he was anguished over his failure. But the queen was not satisfied by his recantation. That wasn't enough for her. Her revenge was set and would only be satisfied by Cranmer's blood. And therefore, she wrote an order to Dr. Pohl to prepare a sermon that would be preached on March 21, 1556, directly before Cranmer's martyrdom. And it was to be preached, and he was to be killed at St. Mary's, Oxford. Dr. Pohl visited Cranmer the day before, and Dr. Pohl was induced to believe that Cranmer the next day would publicly bear witness of his abandonment of, of Protestant doctrine and would affirm publicly the Catholic Church and her doctrine. Well, night passes, the next day comes. Around nine in the morning, the day of his sacrifice, the Queen's commissioners, attended also by various magistrates, bring Cranmer to St. Mary's Church and they clothed him again in his torn, dirty clothing. The same clothes that, he was, that they had dressed him in at his degradation. And as he walked in, it excited the, the commiseration of the people. And in the church was a small stage that was erected just opposite of the pulpit. And he was placed there and he turned his face from them and he fervently began to pray to God. Now, it's at this point... Uh, in the in the in the biography here, that from this point on, I'm I'm somewhat summarizing and I'm somewhat quoting from uh, John Fox's account of martyr uh, of Cranmer's martyrdom, and I encourage you can you can get Fox's book of martyrs free online if you just for the encouragement of your faith. That's a good resource to go and just read about saints of old who have been faithful unto death. So he enters the church. He's placed on this small stage just opposite the pulpit. And he begins to, fervent, begins to fervently pray. And after he has prayed, he then begs the congregation that they would pray for him for his many and grievous sins. But of all of them, there was one sin that lay awfully upon his mind of which he would very shortly speak. During the sermon that Dr. Pohl preached, and he preached about why he was worthy of death, why he was a heretic, heretic. During the sermon, the whole time, Cranmer is weeping bitter tears. And he's lifting up his head and his 
hands to heaven and he's repeatedly letting them down to indicate that he knows he's worthy of death for, for his crimes. And his grief then, after the sermon, his grief then found vent in words. Before his confession to the people, he fell upon his knees and in the following words, he publicly unveiled the deep contrition of his own heart. This is what he prayed. O Father of Heaven, O Son of God, Redeemer of the world, O Holy Ghost, three persons, all one God, have mercy on me, the most wretched caitiff. It's a word that means a cowardly person. Have mercy on me, the most wretched caitiff and miserable sinner. I have offended both against heaven and earth more than my tongue can express. Whither then may I go, or whither may I flee? To heaven I am ashamed to lift up my eyes, and in earth I find no place of refuge. To Thee, therefore, O Lord, do I run. To Thee do I humble myself, saying, O Lord my God, my sins be great, but yet have mercy upon me for Thy great mercy. The great mystery that God became man was not wrought for little or few offenses. Thou didst not give Thy Son, O Heavenly Father, unto death for small sins only, but for all the greatest sins of the world, so that the sinner return to Thee with his whole heart as I do at present. Wherefore, have mercy on me, O God, whose property is always to have mercy. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for Thy great mercy. I crave nothing for my own merits, but for Thy name's sake, that it would be hallowed thereby, and for Thy dear Son, Jesus Christ's sake. And now therefore, O Father of heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And as he finished praying, he turns to the congregation, because it's his, it's his time where the queen and the others expected him to bear public affirmation of his affirming Roman, Roman Catholicism and detesting his Protestant doctrines. And he says this, quote, And now, for as much as I am come to the last end of my life, whereupon hangeth all my life past and all my life to come, either to live with my Master Christ forever in joy or else be in pain forever with the wicked in hell. And I see before mine eyes presently either heaven ready to receive me or else hell ready to swallow me up. I shall therefore declare unto you my very faith how I believe without any color of dissimulation. That means without any concealment or fancy evasive wording. He said, for now is no time to conceal whatsoever I have said or written in time past. And he begins by reciting the Apostles' Creed. He says, first, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And he, he recites the Creed. And then he goes on and he says, I believe every article of the Catholic faith, meaning the church throughout the ages, and every word and sentence taught by our Savior Jesus Christ, His apostles and prophets, in both the New and the Old Testament. Notice who he left out. The Pope. He says, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life. 
And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart. Now at this point, the queen's sitting here thinking he's renouncing the 42 articles, the common book of prayer. And then he continues, things that I have written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be saved. And that is, and he gets explicit, all such bills or papers which I have written or signed with my hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And then he said to them, for inasmuch as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, Therefore, my hand shall be first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And then immediately he began to proclaim, As to the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all of his false doctrine. And he began to start to speak about the Mass, and he begins to be dragged from the pulpit. And he still tries to go on speaking about the errors of Roman Catholic doctrine. And he is drowned out by the shouts of the crowds. And the preacher gave the order, uh, the order, lead the heretic away. And the lamb about to suffer was torn from his stand to the place of slaughter, insulted all the way by the revilings and taunts of the pestilent monks and friars. These are Fox's words with thoughts intent upon a far higher object than the empty threats of a man, he reached the spot dyed with the blood of Ridley and Latimer. So he's brought to the same spot where his friends were martyred. There he knelt for a short time in earnest devotion, and then he arose that he might undress and prepare for the fire. While he is getting dressed, two of the friars who had been successful in getting him to recant the first time try again to get him to recant before he is uh, put into the fire. And, he is, and they are unsuccessful. And he is un, uh, steadfast and immovable with what he had just publicly taught and professed. And so a chain was provided to bind him to the stake. And after they had tied it around him, fire was put to the fuel. And the flames soon began to ascend. And Fox says, Then were the glorious sentiments of the martyr made manifest. Then it was that stretching out his right hand, he held it unshrinkingly in the fire until it was burnt to a cinder, even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand. His body did abide the burning with such steadfastness that he seemed to have no more than, a stake, than the stake to which he was bound. And his eyes were lifted to heaven and he repeated as oft as he could, this unworthy right hand. And he was using also often the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And John Fox closes his biography by saying, in the greatness of the flame, Cranmer gave up the ghost. March 21st, 1556 age 67, Cranmer dies for his faith and enters glory. He failed like Peter in many respects, but he repented like Peter and was restored like Peter. Jesus said to Peter in John 21, 
after he had denied the Lord and Jesus is restoring him, Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John comments and said he said this to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Cranmer, who had often acted inconsistently for fear of his life, in his last hour finally had courage by the grace of God to stand for Christ even at the cost of his life. A man with many failures, many weaknesses, many inconsistencies, and yet a heroic martyr for the faith. One in whom faith was shown to prevail. And so, brothers and sisters, as we've considered Cranmer's life tonight, and as we do this every year, and Lord willing, we'll continue to do it in the coming years, let us listen to the exhortation of Hebrews that we too would be those who give attention to those who've come before us who spoke the Word of God to us, that we might imitate their faith. May we learn from his weaknesses, Cramer's weaknesses. Let those who think they stand take heed lest they fall. But may we also learn of his strengths, that the same God who upheld his faltering faith to the end is our God and will also preserve our faltering faith to the end when He will present us to Himself in splendor and in glory. And so let's pray. Let's ask the Lord that He would write these things upon our hearts and make us a bold generation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the evidence of Your grace in the life of Thomas Cranmer. We praise You that we have examples like this that we relate to not only in their strengths, but in their failures. Father, we thank You for how You even use our sins and our weakness for Your glory and the furtherance of the cause of truth like You did with Cranmer. How even when His enemies and Your enemies thought they had triumphed, it was in that very supposed triumph that You were triumphing. That You were causing the light of truth to be more broadly exposed. Father, we pray that You would teach us from not just Cranmer, but from the many, many stories we have from church history of saints who lived faithfully before Your face. Saints who feared You and served You. Saints who loved You even to the point of death. Father, work courage in our hearts, we pray. We confess to You our own weakness our fear of man. Father, we have never known in our land anything close to the type of danger that these reformers faced. And yet, Father, we pray that You would prepare us for it. And that we would not be those who shrink back, but that we would be those who are found believing, standing firm in the faith of the Gospel, for the cause of truth, for the glory of Christ's name, we pray that You would cause us to walk in genuine communion with our God, that we would be prepared that even should the threat of death come, that we would be such in the presence of heaven that we would not fear it, but that we would rather welcome it, knowing that to die is gain. 
Father, help us, we pray, as Your church. Help us to encourage one another in these things. Help us to look to heroes and imitate them by Your grace. Cause their faith to encourage our faith. Cause their confidence in Your all-sufficiency to encourage us and remind us that You are just as sufficient for our generation. Father, thank You for Your mercies. Thank You for each gathered here. We pray that You'd be gracious to all of us. Cause Your face to shine upon us. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are going to sing number... uh, You take the Trinity hymnal in front of you, the blue hymnal, and turn to number 81. No Reformation night would be complete without singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so number 81, let's uh, turn there and stand together. And we're going to sing. And then lastly, Gary has just a brief announcement about t-shirts and things like that. Oh, yeah. 